morning, Tabernacle. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless and the treacherous live at ease? This is Jeremiah's question to the Lord 50 or 60 years before the prophecy came to Zechariah. And yet it's a question that I hear all too often in Christian circles today. If I'm being honest, I also sometimes wonder these things myself. Why the righteous see trouble and mourn while evildoers feel secure and at peace? Although I dare not attempt to answer this deep theological question this morning, as a guest preacher and a brother in Christ, I do bring good news from our Father, who has spoken through his Son, and here are the words of our Saviors from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sisters and brothers, this is our thought or our topic this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, and for those who are taking notes, here are two observations or prayer points. First, there is a fountain Second, we shall behold him. So for all of the saints who mourn, let's open up God's word to Zechariah chapter 12 and hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Zechariah 12 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let us pray. Most gracious Father who cares for his children as a hen her chicks, we come calling on you because, Lord, you are worthy. And Father, we need you. We know that we have not looked at your word. We have not considered your spirit. We have not committed ourselves to you nearly enough. Like Zachariah's audience, we are lacking in our worship, and we have failed to give you the praise that your great name deserves. So Holy Spirit, please fall afresh on this church, on your servant as he proclaims salvation of sinners and the bodily resurrection of your soon coming King, Jesus Christ. God, may I decrease that you might increase. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please give your chosen ones just what they need until you return for us. It's in the precious and the adorable name of Jesus Christ that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. The greatest stories ever told all, in my opinion, take place in the sacred writings of our Christian faith. So that is what I hope to do this morning, to help explain this story of God's care with other biblical stories 
displaying his faithfulness. Now, I know you all have been in Zechariah for a while, and so I'm going to try not to bore you with details. Instead, I'm going to stand before you as a lover of God, as a lover of his word, and a lover of his people, and tell you that, unfortunately, I'm a brother who knows more about Zechariah and his original audience than I know about you. Uh, and so with that being said, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for this sermon. I've been praying for this church. But yet still, the Spirit has sent me here to offer encouragement to those who mourn. For whatever reason you may be mourning, especially for those who mourn as they look upon Jesus, the one who was pierced for our sins and our salvation. So as stated before, I cannot tell you why the wicked prosper. In fact, I can't even tell you why you are mourning. But for those of you who are burdened, for those of you who are depressed, for all of the children of God who suffer loss or rejection, those who get attacked by Satan, for those who are no stranger to pain, I'm talking to the lady who gets no respect. I'm talking to the guy who's good at what he does but finishes last, to the faithful employee who gets passed over for promotions Hear these words again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And from our passage, let us understand this first and foundational point. There is a fountain. In 1772, four years before the 13 colonists came together to sign the United States Declaration of Independence, William Cooper, inspired by Zechariah 13, penned and published the great hymn that we just sang. There is a fountain. We sang it, so I won't elaborate on its content, but I will say a few things about its author. See, from 1763 to 1765, Cooper experienced depression. He had madness. He even went insane, so severe that he was institutionalized. Yes, that great hymn writer, once released, received care and found refuge in a Christian evangelical community, and although he suffered with nightmares and fears of damnation for years to come, it is him who continues to bless us, Christ church, through the many hymns that he wrote, but also through his influences on people like John Newton, who was a close friend who wrote Amazing Grace, and also Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who often quoted his anti-slavery poems and rhetoric. See, Cooper understood, and he continues to teach us that Zechariah prophesied something that is really important to us, and that is that grace and mercy are provided through the sacrifice of God's only Son, that this is an act of grace, and it's free to all sinners who mourn. Verse 10 states this with the phrase, and I will pour out, and verse 1 of chapter 13 begins with the phrase, on that day there will be a fountain. For Zechariah, this is all a prophecy from Jehovah, and it is the most common use of the word prophecy, for it all has to do with future events, things that are still yet to come. Many of these things that the prophet declared will take place for his audience, but these things for us have already taken place. That's right, 500 years after his proclamation, these things began to take place, and they are still taking place in us right now. Yes, for Cooper and for all modern believers, Zachariah's fountain is free to all. That which he saw, actually, we know, flows from Calvary's mountain. There is still a future that day for us, 
But we must praise the Lord and we must rejoice because of what has already been poured out. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us at Pentecost. Because of the fountain and the springs of living water which we received on that old rugged cross. This is why we say there is a fountain filled with blood. Because the Father has already atoned for our sins. Although we have been sinners, he has poured out his precious blood and his son. And although we mourn, we are not a people without hope. May we always remember that God is faithful and he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who ensures all of his promise. Although we have sinned and fallen short, yet in response to humanity's first and every sin, from Genesis 3 to the words given to this minor prophet and many times throughout the Old Testament, the creator guarantees that Satan will be defeated and salvation will come by his provision alone. See, this passage may not be the most popular, and you may never see Zechariah 12 or 13 on a billboard or on a t-shirt. But these promises read, and they are really important. They are part of the major work of God and his unabridged redemptive plan. By the time of Zechariah, which is about the 500 B.C.s, God has set aside a particular people to bless them. But it's important that we note that even as we read that passage, that this is not the people we expect to see. It is not Israel who God is blessing. According to verse 10 and 1 of chapter 13, the specific recipients are the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But how do you get such a small subset? And what happened to Israel? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm going to take just a second, since there's no quick way of giving you this information, to give you a few stories about how we would get to this type of blessing. See, many of us know about Abraham's faith. We know about how God chose him and how he established a covenant with him and his descendants to be a blessing, to have offspring, to possess the land of Canaan forever. But here is something that we oftentimes skip. Maybe you don't, but oftentimes in my reading we skip According to Genesis 15, it is God who also promises Abraham that his family will spend 400 years in slavery. This is also a foundational covenant and part of it because God is basically promising that they will suffer and that they will mourn. We can skip a bunch of the blessings and we get to the story of the Exodus, but not in Exodus. We actually start reading Exodus about Exodus in Genesis 37. See, when Jacob's son sailed Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, Judah, Jacob's fourth son, who sleeps with his daughter-in-law and then calls her more righteous than himself, he brings his brother to tears when he offers to live as a servant in order that he might save his youngest brother Benjamin and in order to keep his father away from evil. After all of this, these descendants moved to Egypt and all of the Egyptians sell their livestock, their land, and themselves to Joseph for Pharaoh. Finally, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, he blesses Judah with these words in Genesis 49, which actually laid a foundation for why David is blessed. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on your neck, on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah, you are a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Despite this wonderful blessing and their great size, within the tribe of Judah, we do not find any warriors, any heroes, or any prophets, maybe except for Caleb and Boaz, all through the books of Moses, through Joshua, through Judges, and through Ruth. In fact, it's only after God rejects Saul, the king of all Israel, does the Lord send Samuel to find a son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah. With some similarities to our passage today, in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel then takes out the horn of oil, he anoints him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. God certifies that blessing Jacob gave Judah, he certifies his blessing that he gave to Jacob through Judah by sending his spirit to rush upon David. And this is how we get that small subset of the house of David that we read about in verse 10. Yet even this great promise that's given to David to be the king of all of the nation, David served Saul for, in several capacities for over a decade and spent much of his time in mourning while running for his life even after becoming the king. In addition, here are two stories that help explain the inhabitants of Jerusalem, why these people would be the people that God chose. From 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says, At Hebron he, that is David, ruled over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off because they were thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David lived in the stronghold and called the city David. And David built the city all around and inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Zechariah's audience is further explained to us in verses 11 through 14. You'll read names there, the Levites, the Shimeonites. But remember how I said that this subset is not what we would generally expect. For first king tells us something about that northern king, which is, is that northern kingdom, which is Israel. And it also tells us about the prophecy. So right after Solomon's death, led by Jeroboam, ten tribes and hundreds, if not thousands, of descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they reject God and start worshiping foreign gods in their own special places, they are carried off eventually into Assyria. So the king Jeroboam took counsel and he made two golden calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. I'm sorry if the background seems like it takes a little bit too much time, but I hope this helps us understand that this passage and this song that we were singing a little bit more. You see, it is imperative that we understand and we rejoice that we do have a fountain and never forget how we get to this fountain, which is Christ. 
He is our streams of living water. He satisfies even in the toughest and the driest of situations. We can cry out for mercy, but we need to know that none of us can cleanse ourselves. None of us can ever do anything to gain the perfect love of the Trinity. Yet, as recipients of grace, just like David and our forefathers, we are not without responsibility. We cannot rely on our cleverness like David. We cannot go along with the crowd like Saul or choose our own adventures when we get impatient like all of Israel. We cannot take our Savior's graciousness for granted, nor can we expect a life free from suffering and mourning. In fact, he promises this. His promise and the fountain made possible by his sacrificial blood should lead us to pleas of mercy, this passage says. It should actually motivate us to greater service unto the Lord, which brings us to our second point. We shall behold him. There are many reasons why we are mourning today. And let's be honest, all of it's not because we want to serve Christ in a fallen world. See, some of us are mourning because the Holy Spirit, the fountain that Jesus promised to pour out and then gave his church, has helped us look upon the one who has been pierced. See, the Holy Spirit is showing some of us our weakness, and like Cooper, we don't know what to do with it. God takes a 40-year 400 years off from speaking to the children of Israel. And then Mark's fast-paced gospel begins with these most beautiful picture of washing, of cleansing, and of mourning. And the most interesting part of that story, I think, comes in verse 5 of the chapter when it says, And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, that is John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing, their sins. He said all of Israel, all of Judea is going out confessing their sins. For those who mourn in order to develop true worship and repentance, we must encourage ourselves with these scriptures. We have to tell ourselves and one another that Christ has sent us the comforter, that he is coming back and that we shall behold him. But we also must be honest about our sins, knowing that there is a fountain the scriptures give us a glimpse of Satan's playbook as well as confidence in God's love for us. We not only know of the wicked ways in which we will be treated, but we also know how the righteous can have an approach to difficult situations and overcome the impossible by putting their trust in the Lord. You see, we see how David, this man who is recommended here, has defeated Goliath, but we also know how he is overtaken by lust. We know how he cried out and how he mourned for his child before getting up and giving God the praise for the resurrection. This is an encouragement to us, and in our mourning, we can receive the comfort if we think about the things that God has done. Nathan's name is here because Nathan took courage and he served God as a spokesperson. He confronted even King David and he risked his own life. What about the Levites? Those guys who mourned as they killed their own relatives because they feared and they loved God. And also, King Josiah, who had to fight with his own family, but brought such great religious reform to the house of David, 
that when he died, they established a national time of mourning in the plains of Megiddo. This is what is being referenced in this passage here. The Holy Spirit leads, he guides, and he protects. He appears with tongues of fire, and even now, he gives us all that we need to help us shout and praise to the Lord. But from John's gospel, we learn that he is also sent from the Father and the Son to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This is Christ's promise. This is the fountain that we will never leave, be left, nor be forsaken. In fact, he said it, that it is better that he goes away. Jesus said, it is better that I go away and I send the Holy Spirit to you. Still, it is easy for us to drown out God's good word for our own complaints or our own desires. I know mourning is a serious thing around here. Worse still, even when the helper comes and he helps clean our house, many of us are being attacked, even at this right and present moment, by Satan. Therefore, let's recognize that the master has given his servants everything that they need. And in that, as we read in this passage, he has given us families. And this is the place in which he has told us that we must go when it's time to mourn. Let's learn a lesson from this passage and see, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that we need to remain in the fold. It may seem strange to some of you why these brothers and sisters separated, why the wives were by themselves. I thought this was interesting too. And one commentator explained that the women were not waiting. The women were not waiting to mourn or to praise the Lord, but they wanted to be full participants with God and his plan from the beginning. This is the promise that Jesus Christ gives us, that those who live with him, those who die with him, they have the hope of rising with him as well. We shall behold him was written. It's a song that was written way back in 1981. On one night, as a lady was heading to a revival, she wrote the words of a simple song which became a major Christian hit. And the writer's story is pretty interesting, but this is not what I will bore you with. What I'll just tell you is, is as the writer wrote this song, and as I saw her perform it and she was signing it, what I recognize is this writer did not want to share, did not want to have God's glory by herself, but she wanted to share God's glory. She said, we shall behold him, not just I shall behold him. And it was this beautiful thing that she really wanted all types of people to understand and to see what God was doing. This takes us to our first point of application. We shall behold him together. This is what God has promised us. Therefore, let us mourn together. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And the same was true of the house of David. If we remember that our access to his living waters is through the spirit of grace, we might just be excited about sharing God's good news with others. If we tune in to what the Holy Spirit is saying concerning our sins and our uncleanliness, maybe we'll be able to show compassion to our neighbors who are mourning. Our second point of application is similar. Even in our mourning, there is a fountain, so let us rejoice. Hadad Ramon is a place named after two Syrian gods, yet it is known 
for the lamentation that took place when a godly king, a descendant of David, a man of Judah died. My point here is simple, that God can turn anything around. He can use anything for his good pleasure. Your needs are not insignificant to the Lord, and even to the most lonely or to the most depressed, I say again, there is a fountain. To the biggest liar or the greatest hater of God, come and drink from these springs that will never run dry. Jesus Christ will save you today. Brothers and sisters, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In this life, we are called to love and we are called to comfort one another. So saints of God, remember that Christ is our fountain and we shall behold him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So in closing, I do ask that you would not ever assume that everyone knows about your weakness or that everyone knows about your mourning. Do not know that people, do not say that people know about your suffering. If you feel as if no one cares, if you feel as if no one is paying attention to you and you are here today, I do recommend that you would find a friend here at Tabernacle. I'm sure this church would love to invite you, to welcome you, to love you with open arms. We must remember that our God will judge and he will destroy, but he also loves to forgive and to restore. So come ye sinners and come Lord Jesus to the God of wonders, to Christ our hope and our redeemer, to the Holy Spirit who has convicted us of our sins and who gives us grace to continue the road ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.